and welcome to the first official edition of Montgomery Talk. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media. Today I'm speaking with Nancy Navarro, who yesterday was elected president of the Montgomery County Council. She is the only woman on that body, and I hope to talk to her about that in a little bit. But today we'll be talking about uh, county government, politics, and especially the council and what County Executive Mark Elbert should do in his first steps to rule the largest county in Maryland. But before we talk more about the county, I wanted to talk about two uh, national headlines. First is today is the National Day of Mourning for President George H.W. Bush. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on the president, Ms. Navarro. Yeah, well, thank you so much for this invitation. I think today really should be a day of reflection and I think a day also of gratitude to everything that this president contributed to our country. More than anything for me, it's a bit of a nostalgia day today because he represented, I believe, you know, the best in what uh, presidents, regardless of your political background, really had to offer to this country in terms of leadership and in terms of really safeguarding our institutions and preserving our values. And it is a moment, I think, also to reflect, to say, I think, thank you, and of course, condolences to the family, but also for us to have another opportunity to recommit ourselves to that type of exemplary, I think, uh, leadership in terms of maintaining our institutions uh, of democracy very strong. Not that people always agreed with the you know, particular agenda or some of the decisions, but boy, you know, is it is a different today. And so, um, so for me, I think that that's been uh, very much on my mind. Oh, okay. Well, the, the second headline I want to ask you about is an entirely different um, uh, arena. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yesterday said she's going to pay her, pay her interns $15 an hour. And I was curious, what do interns for the county make? And if there's any thought that that should be reflected in Rockville as opposed to? Yeah, well, a very interesting little story here. I actually am one of the founding members of a nonprofit movement, an effort called Pay Our Interns, that Carlos uh, Vera here, a very young Latino young man who uh, was a graduate of American University, started this movement, this organization that was national. And this is what sparked Congress to begin to pay their interns. I think that Senator Chris Van Hollen was the first one who pledged to do that, actually, in one of our local Democratic Central Committee uh, balls, where uh, Carlos actually was the keynote speaker. I actually invited him to speak. So I have a little bit to do in a very indirect way with this movement. Here in our county, you know, at least council members have the ability to have interns, and we have the ability to pay them as well. And I know I have had interns who have, all, have always been paid. And uh, I believe very strongly in that. So I think that we have set the example here for, for quite a while. Okay. And I assume they're being paid minimum wage. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well. And more. Well, <laughs> yeah. I've worked for three news organizations that had interns. Two of them paid. One of them did not pay them. And um, that news organization is no longer with us. So. Yeah. Of course, the uh, executive's ball was Monday night. I pulled Peter Francho aside, and he said that uh, the state is expecting an ocean of revenue, uh, which is not something you normally hear him say, because of it's a result of Trump tax cuts, and it's also because he's starting to assess sales taxes on uh, Internet um, sales. What's your sales pitch to him on where that money should go? <laughs> Montgomery County has a lot of needs. Uh, Montgomery County has obviously always been at the forefront of economic growth, but we also have a number of areas where we need some additional help, mainly uh, when it comes to education aid, 
uh, and really to address some of the challenges that we have with poverty. So we have, uh, I think, weathered the recession quite well, but it's not as if we have been able to come out uh, and done many of the things that we'd like to do. We're very, very mindful of the fact that, you know, this is not a time to think about additional sources of revenue like tax increases. So my message to my friend uh, Peter Francho is to remember us and remember how much we contribute to the state coffers and uh, please uh, make sure that we get our fair share. Well, speaking of tax increases, um, I pulled Craig Rice aside, who, and we talked a little bit about universal pre-K, and he doesn't think the county can fulfill its goals without additional resources, which is just another way of saying a tax increase. How will the county kind of balance that? A desire to not raise taxes, but also a desire to expand education services so expensively. By doing the hard work. I mean, you know, we need to, I think, especially right now, we have this amazing opportunity with a new administration to take a very hard look at what we have in place already. I mean, we have quite a number of assets in place that we can leverage in order to push forward this agenda of early care and education. I think we also have to be realistic about the notion that it's going to have to be a phased-in approach. We did that before with all-day kindergarten, for example. When that initiative took place here in Montgomery County, we started in the areas that have been identified as having the highest poverty, uh, the highest mobility rates and ESOL rates, and we started there. It makes sense. I mean, it's like doing triage work, and then you, you, know, you face it in. And so to me, I think this is a very auspicious moment because one thing I've been discussing with County Executive Elrich is that we do need to be bold. We need to put forth a four-year plan, but we should start with the low-hanging fruit so that he can have an opportunity also to take a look at the county's finances very carefully and where it is that we can perhaps then identify sources that can be dedicated to this endeavor. So I'd like to back up a second. Since you mentioned so much about education, I think we should point out that you spent five years five years on the uh, yeah. Montgomery County Board of Education yeah. before you ascended to the uh, county council. And you've been in the county council since 2009. Correct. Yes. So this is your ninth year, if I can do the math correctly. Yes. It'll be one more year before, one more term before your term limited. Yes. But even before that is what I, I, I'm kind of interested in is you were born in Venezuela. You spent yes. 10 years there. In Venezuela? Yes. No, I was born and raised in Venezuela, but in 1975, I came to uh, Rolla, Missouri with my parents because my father was doing graduate work there at the University of Missouri, Rolla. So I was there for two years, which is when I learned English, went back to Venezuela and went through, you know, what's middle school, high school, and then convinced my parents in some magical act to allow me to come back to the United States to go to college. And they sent me to the University of Missouri, Columbia. Pardon for the errors. It was <laughs> no, from, no problem. It was from Wikipedia, I admit. <laughs> um, time to but, correct that. But um, the reason why I bring it up oh. is I'm, I'm curious how that time informs your public service today. I mean, what is it about what you have, well, essentially what you've experienced, but certainly what you've experienced overseas and being a county council person here in Montgomery yeah. County? Yeah. You know, I absolutely had such a huge impact. One of the first things that it did for me is is that it really highlights this notion that we are not one-dimensional beings, right? That, you know, even for somebody like me who grew up in Venezuela, I grew up in a middle-class family and grew up with a lot of opportunities, but at the same time had parents who had come from very humble beginnings and instilled in me the 
love of education, but also giving back. And so that was very much ingrained. But having had the opportunity to come to the United States at age 10 also opened my eyes to the possibilities that existed throughout the world and the different types of institutions that existed and different types, even of government. Even at that time, I was looking at those type of things and noticing certain things. So it really did shape me as being somebody that has a very expansive view of the world while always recognizing that, you know, excellence is not finite and that we have a responsibility to address issues of those who are the most vulnerable while keeping in mind that we need to engage in very aggressive economic development strategies. And so that's why I've never been someone who would auto-label myself, you know, as being leftist or on the right or, you know. To me, it's about being realistic and pragmatic. And so that I think I've brought into my public service But I do think that I have this additional edge, which means that I can navigate in and out of lots of different communities in a very seamless fashion because I had to do that at a very early age. Hmm. What are your priorities going into this year as being council president? My number one priority is the commitment to help shepherd the work of this body. You know, I mean, I did have the opportunity to serve as president of the Board of Education twice uh, and then once at the county council in 2013 at a time when we were just recovering from the recession. This year is critical. This is when we're ushering in a new era of leadership in Montgomery County. And so I am very clear that my first job is to shepherd the work of the body and assist my colleagues in achieving that, especially those new colleagues who are all really, you know, wonderful folks. But really, that's my number one priority. Aside from that, I do want to spend 2019 working on an equity policy. We will begin that work in January with the goal of having passed a piece of legislation by the fall of 2019 to have it effective 2020 in January so County Executive Elrich can begin his work of implementing this throughout. That's going to be really critical. Continuing to enhance our work with education, which seems to be always an endless responsibility that we have, and navigating you know, our budget process because even though the state has announced, and that's a great thing, that they have an increase in revenues, we haven't received, I hope that we received by December 11th, our own numbers. But we have so many challenges in the fiscal realm especially with our debt service, for example, the continued growth of enrollment in our school system. And as I said before, the growth in poverty. A lot of people don't realize that we have about 56,000 students that receive free and reduced meals, which is an indicator of poverty. So all of this is interconnected. And to me, I think, again, being that it's the first year of a new administration, a new year with a new reconstituted council, um, that's going to be part of the work, is kind of uh, helping guide everyone so that we can have a successful budget and also successful initiatives. Okay, I'd like to back up a second, and could you describe the equity policy and what exactly it'll do? Sure. The goal is to make sure that we have a law in place that mandates that every time we look at budgetary decisions, land use decisions, legislation that we are proposing, that there is an analysis so that we can benchmark ourselves and ensure that we are not exacerbating disparities or inequities that already exist in the county. And this is important because if you think about being fiscally responsible, and if you think about how are we using our taxpayers' dollars, obviously we want to know that we are making an impact and we are achieving the results that we are set out to achieve. If inadvertently what you're doing is exacerbating these disparities, then obviously you're not being good stewards of our taxpayers' money because you're going to have to come back and remediate. And the one way to do that is for us to benchmark ourselves, to know where we are, to understand how it is that we're moving the needle or not. 
Places like King County in the state of Washington, which I spent some time this summer visiting with their folks there, have engaged and embarked in this and have done this in a way that is structural and in a way that you are accountable. So that's why for me it was important to spend a year doing this. This is a deliberative work. This is not something that you just come up with and say, hey, here's the bill, let's do it. So we're going to you know, engage experts and look at best practices. We're going to engage in a robust community engagement process and then come back with a piece of legislation that, again, is structural. I am very, very adamant about the fact that we cannot depend on whoever gets elected to these positions to be asking these questions, especially when you look at who we are in Montgomery County in 2018 going forward. So that's why this structural piece is so important to me. Well, when you talk about equity, most people have in their minds a sort of protected classes that, that need that sort of protection. But I, I've been spending some time up in Poolsville, and there's some folks up there who are saying that, okay, we can't grow we're not going to have the votes to be able to get somebody elected who can fight for our, our what we need, but we've got a dilapidated high school. We have difficulty getting access to county services. Would a law like this apply to them, or would it only apply like in other ways? Yeah, so this particular uh, effort is going to look at racial inequities and disparities, right? Because, again, when you look at the demographics of the county and you see, you know, we have five councilmanic districts. Four of those five are majority people of color. When you look at that disparities in academic achievement and access to health care and access to higher education and access to transportation, even when you look at issues like land use decisions vis-a-vis amenities or revitalization projects, et cetera, they disproportionately affect those communities. And so, again, as that segment of the community continues to grow, if we are not responsive and invest our dollars in ways that close those gaps, it's just not going to be sustainable in terms of budgetary decisions. So that's what we're going to look at. Now, there are, I think, some really wonderful consequences of having the discipline of looking at things through this equity lens, because then when you also look about people, population in our county that is aging, right? So when we do make our land use decisions, we can look at that as well. And even though that is kind of outside the scope of racial inequities, it does give you the discipline to look at how are we responding to our constituents in terms of the trends that we are seeing. So in essence, you know, to back to your question, I think that that is something that then would be a lot more apparent as we, again, go through this very disciplined process moving forward. Okay, we want to take a quick break. Um, You're listening to Montgomery Talk. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, and we're talking with Council President Nancy Navarro. MCM, your community media center, is making Montgomery County a great place to live through programs like 21 This Week. Montgomery County's hardest-hitting political talk show keeps you up to date with the local political scene. Montgomery Community Media. Our middle name is Community. And we're back with more Montgomery Talk with Council President Nancy Navarro and our discussion about county government. We just uh, ended talking about Poolsville, and I just want to bring that up again um, because I know that community is going to be fighting once again for a new high school. I believe there's some money in the CIP to do some planning money for that. How do you think the council sees a new high school for Poolsville? Is it high on the list, low on the list? 
Well, I mean, that's a tough question. I don't think I would feel comfortable defining something as high or low on the list, especially because there is a very robust process that the Board of Education engages in. And, you know, I defer to their judgment in terms of where things are. What I do know is that every time we get the request from the Board of Education through the executive visa via the CIP, We have literally been over backwards to make sure that we address the most pressing needs that exist in terms of facilities in the schools, so much so that, you know, in 2016, this is why we raised recreation taxes. It was so that we could add money to our CIP budget without having to affect our debt service. For example, in areas like Kent Mill, where we have Lee Middle School, a school that had not been renovated since 1964, where literally you had leaks all over every single hallway and you had floors and things like that, we did make a decision to keep that on schedule because there were health and safety issues. So, you know, this is a council that has a long history of always responding to the most pressing need, and I don't think it would be any different this year. Okay. Toward the end of this term will be about the time when the council decides what to do about the minimum wage. You'll hit the $15 an hour, I guess, in 2021, just in time for an election year to decide what to do about it. Any thoughts on what your next steps are going to be? I think we engaged in a phased-in approach first. And, you know, when I was president in 2013, I'm very proud. This was one of the signature accomplishments of my presidency. And then, of course, when we decided to adopt a bill that would take it to the $15 level. And so I believe that we have accomplished something really important for Montgomery County and their residents. And as far as I know, there hasn't been any conversation about any further bills. Nobody wants to take it to $20 an hour. I don't, haven't heard that. Okay. <laughs> How do you expect development is going to change under the uh, Elrich administration? Of course, development was a huge part of the uh, election coming up, but it seems development is pretty much a council function. Um, at least you guys get to set policy. You guys pass land use guides. You guys pass master plans. The planning board reports to you. So you have a far greater role as far as yeah. uh, what happens as far as development. Right, which is why I watched this campaign debate you know, very closely and kept asking myself, why was there such a strange uh, energy around the issue of the possibility of Mark Eldridge becoming executive? The truth of the matter is that the council is the one who has been, through the charter, is responsible for land use decisions. And so it's interesting. And, and, and we have actually engaged, I think, in passing, I think, the most master plans ever, at least this outgoing council did. So... I feel like, you know, in terms of master plans, we are pretty much updated, right? We've done quite quite a lot of work. You know, there's only rewrite. I mean, a lot of those things. You know, so now comes is the job of looking at our county comprehensively. It, we can't look at redevelopment or development in isolation. And so the work of developing a strategic vision for the county is one that now we can engage in for this next chapter and this next iteration of leadership. What is it that we want to Montgomery County to be perceived as? What is it that we want to position ourselves as being? And then look at the different master plans that we have adopted to see how we can promote that. So transit-oriented development is a big thing. You know, we were talking earlier about how do we expand the tax base? How do I would like to attract young professionals to the county at the same time as the population is aging. People want to downsize. Transit-oriented development is very attractive to those two demographic segments. So, you know, making sure that the amenities are there, making sure that people see that there is vibrancy. 
but also respecting the fact that there are a lot of single-family home neighborhoods and quiet cul-de-sacs and ensuring that that remains the case because then it means that you have choices. When I talk about diversity in the county, I also refer to the fact that we have a lot of choices of where to live, how to live. And that's, I think, what we have positioned in terms of policy. I think debate will continue in terms of what does it take to, for example, build housing How much money are we supposed to be extracting from those who are supposed to build housing, understanding that developers are not in the business of charity? They have to make money because it's a private sector endeavor. So there's always going to be that tension, and that is the work that we continue to take upon. So again, I see it as a holistic approach, a macro approach, while having been part of the council that made some strategic decisions about where do you place, you know, higher density? Where do you look at opportunities to have more affordable housing, avoiding concentration of affordable housing, for example, to not to create imbalances? This is not a one soundbite type of answer because it's a very complex answer issue for a county where you know, almost 30% of the land has been reserved for agricultural use. Uh, it, it continues to be that challenge, but I think that. This is a council that understands that. And I do know that we can work collaboratively with Mark Elrich to ensure that we move forward an agenda that works for everybody and that is sustainable. Once again, Montgomery County has lost a major employer to Virginia with the announcement of Amazon going to uh, Crystal City. What does the county have to do to flip that script? Well, maybe the region gained a major employer. I like to look at it from that lens, and, you know, I'm not going to be shy (laughs) about saying that as somebody who is a member of the board of of COG, you know, the regional body here, Council of Governments, we always talk about opportunities that the region can go after. And there is no doubt that we were all competing very, you know, forcefully, but we are very pleased that, you know, the metropolitan, the Washington metropolitan region through, you know, this Northern Virginia decision that we're going to have this major employer coming here for the first time. So I look at it from that perspective. But I think that, you know, we heard some remarks from Executive Elrich about looking at our regulatory regime and seeing where we can, you know, continue to streamline. I think that the Economic Development Corporation has done good work and it's time to take it up to the next level. I believe that our workforce Montgomery needs to definitely take a very close look at what they're doing and how we're aligning the creation of this workforce pipeline. We have to look at, again, the quality of our schools and where is it that we can incentivize and where is it that it's appropriate to do that in order to attract companies. But undergirding all of this is, I'll refer back to the master plans that we adopted, right? We have, for example, Viva White Oak, we have really positioned some redevelopment projects and master plans around different federal entities that we have here in the county, which is huge assets for us to be able to provide that synergy and that ecosystem to put ourselves on the map as a bioscience, life science hub. And if we have the right, you know, prepared, qualified workforce pipeline, if we have quality education institutions, if we have quality of life, and then we have already set the stage for this future redevelopment in the private sector, we have all the ingredients, and now we just need to go out there and be very, very aggressive in creating those opportunities and really wooing all of these startups and other companies that would find this to be super attractive. So I feel that this is the next level of work that we have to do, and we have to be razor sharp, I think, intentional and strategic about it, and we will succeed. So I think that my colleagues on the county council understand that. And even though for a very long time there was 
always this question about who is in charge and who owns the economic development strategy for the county, because traditionally it had to be the executive's purview, given that that person oversaw the economic development department. Um, now we're sort of in a different space, and we're all working on it together, and we will continue to do so. Okay. Well, speaking of aggressiveness, how aggressive is the county going to be at going after Apple? I understand they want a new campus. Well, you know, we will dust off many of the proposals and opportunities that we put together in the package for Amazon and get to work. I think that that would be a really wonderful opportunity as well. This morning, Andrew Friedson did a walking tour of Bethesda. One of the issues that came up over and over again was the pedestrian safety, particularly about around the construction. Mm-hmm. I think he wanted to bend over backwards to not point things out, but Marriott has kept a pedestrian walkway so that you can cross along Woodmont Avenue and Wisconsin Avenue without having to go in the middle of the street, whereas the, there's a project just a block away, which is just as big or almost as big, and they're redoing the sidewalks on both uh, Woodmont and Wisconsin. It seems like it's a just a no-brainer to try and tell these companies, you know, leave a, a sidewalk somewhere. What does the county need to do about pedestrian safety, and why can't it solve that problem? Wow, you know, I mean, maybe uh, the question is, you know, why is this a challenge throughout the country? Obviously, as you're growing and as we are seeing also, Um, more density and more pedestrians trying to negotiate roadways. This continues to be a challenge, I think, you know, throughout the nation. I mean, we hear it a lot with uh, large jurisdictions. We, um, as you probably know, just had a session that actually I requested uh, in order to sit down with the state folks and really come to some agreement around streamlining our cooperation because this arrangement where many of these avenues and these you know streets are state highway streets that you have to go through another sort of layer of bureaucracy to respond quickly when you identify certain Uh, immediate needs. And also, even though, you know, we have a very robust plan, we have advisory groups, we have Vision Zero, etc. We need to work together with the state, A, to identify increased funding, going back to this issue, but also, you know, B, whenever it involves state, you know, roads, and most of these large arteries are state roads, the ones that have numbers, to allow us to be able to respond very quickly to make those uh, tweaks and those changes. So there is a lot of energy right now and a lot of work going through. We were very pleased with the tone of, you know, the desire to work collaboratively and we'll continue. Yeah, we'll continue to work on that very, very smartly. I've told this story to a number of people. I'm sorry. I don't think I've ever told you, so I feel free to dust it off. US 40 goes through the west side of Frederick. 15 years ago, some boys tried to cross 40, got hit. It was a horrible uh, accident. And the city looked, tried to figure out how to solve the problem, and they put a fence down the middle of the median strip. We haven't had that problem in 15 years. It seems like a fence would solve Veers Mill Road, Georgia Avenue, a lot of these major yeah. arteries. Actually, that- there are fences that have been put in medians. I can tell you, like on Randolph Road, on Georgia Avenue, there have been you know particular high traffic areas where that has happened already. So it's something that is definitely being done. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I definitely wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that you're the only woman on the council. In fact, on your inauguration day, we had a picture of the nine of you lined up and uh, posted on Twitter and uh, someone responded, hashtag too many men. In a county that is as progressive as Montgomery County, it seems as though a failure in that women just don't seem to have made it to the county council now. 
We've added women to the House of Delegates. I don't think there was a change in the state Senate. The entire school board is women. Mm -hmm. But so many services are decided by the county council that it would seem as though yeah. cutting the number of women on the council in half, essentially, in this uh, last election seems ridiculous, considering that a dozen qualified women ran for the at-large position and couldn't break through. Is it a glass ceiling? I don't know. <laughs> what, it, well, what is wrong? We should have an entire uh, podcast dedicated to this conversation. When I ran in 08, I was one woman running. I think there were like eight men. And in 09, I was the one woman running against uh, also about eight or nine men. So I'm very familiar with the barriers that exist for women to, number one, step up. Just just doing that, it's not an easy thing to do. But then once you step up to be taken seriously and also to tap into the infrastructure needed to run very competitive campaigns. Now, what I've said already also publicly is that, you know, I lost in 2008 and I ran again in 2009. And so my message to the very qualified women that ran this time is to, you know, lace up their running shoes and right now start running for 2022 because there will be openings coming up on the county council and that is something that you must do but it is true that we have to also take a step back and understand that the barriers do exist and i'll be completely honest i as i said earlier was born in venezuela it's a latin american country i'm the oldest of four siblings three girls one boy my father actually was quite a feminist. I didn't realize that until I grew up in terms of how he laid it out for me that I could do whatever I wanted. So I never saw the world from that lens until I think it became so apparent once I got into politics. And even now serving on the county council for all these years, you know, I told the joke about, you know, being on the receiving line at the ball and the husband of a very prominent leader in the county mistaking me for George Leventhal's wife, people mistaking me for Mike Knapp's staffer. And I mean, there are so many stories uh, or me putting forth certain proposals and then having male colleagues co-opt those proposals and put them forth as if they're their own. And the media covering my male colleagues, if I had to probably do some kind of analysis, it would be very apparent that time and time and time and time again, it's as if I don't exist, or I'm only described as a leader for the immigrant community or minorities community when I've been chairing the government operations and fiscal policy committee, when I have been really involved in a lot of different policy areas. And so the glass ceiling per se doesn't stop at being elected. It's about really blazing that trail and just occupying this space that I hope will begin to chip away at what is implicit bias against women being in leadership positions. And I say that again as somebody who didn't come into this with that lens, but have, you know, I have experienced it firsthand. So yeah, I think we need to take a look and examine our choices. And I'm hoping that 2022 will be a different story for sure. And so, you know, I'm very open and transparent and I always share my experiences and I've mentored many, many many young women, including many through my office, giving them opportunities to be in this space. But we do need to do more. In talking with the candidates during the election, the women who ran, I think almost every one of them said, I don't want to be elected because I'm a woman. They want to be elected because of what their skills are. What Absolutely. They're, what they're, and I almost wonder if that isn't something that ought to be reexamined. If it's perfectly all right, for example, to say we need an African-American voice on the council. We need a, a voice from the up county. We need a voice from these different neighborhoods. It may be 
quite logical to then turn that around and say, we should have a female voice and more than just one female voice, you know, have 50% of it be female voices. You know, I mean, again, and I think I started this conversation with saying that my experience having, you know, been born and raised in a different country and coming here very young helped me really see the world in a more expansive fashion. So I think it's sad that in 2018, we're still having this conversation, right? You know, that somehow when I was running, I would hear established you know, elected officials say to me, you know, be careful not to be typecast as the Latina council member, the Latina member of the Board of Education. or the, And it's kind of like, look, you know, I can't help that. I mean, that's who I am, right? But I'm much more than that. And so that whole conversation is one that deserves a lot more scrutiny in terms of how do we present ourselves? How are we perceived? and also the opportunities that might exist. The public campaign finance bill, which I know has been credited, of course, to Councilmember Phil Andrews, because you know, he was a big proponent. But to be honest with you, <laughs> I spent so much time as chair of the GO committee working on that bill, because it came through my committee. And as a matter of fact, the committee to recommend the funding level was, was my proposal. And you know, I have a lot of gray hairs by getting that bill out there. But anyway, it really also helps to expand access for people like women who maybe before didn't think that they could be viable because of this whole fundraising you know, machinery that is so hard to break through. Many of us, and I will count myself, don't enjoy having to make cold calls and ask for money. So we have put in place some structural openings. And I think, again, I, I think that 2022, I am really hopeful that we're going to change that. We have to, uh, I'll be honest, and it does make a difference to have leadership that reflects the community. That makes a world of difference, including, you know, in terms of backgrounds. And I'll just give you another anecdote. A lot of people assume that I know a lot of things about everything that has to do with the Latino community. And the reality is that I've had to really, you know, study a lot and learn a lot in order to be an informed policymaker. So it goes for everybody, I think. But it's a great, it's a great topic, and I hope that we can talk about that even more. Well, I think that was a good time to end. That's the final word. Thank you, Nancy Navarro, you. for coming to join us. And thank you all for listening. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter for Montgomery Community Media. And next time, be sure to go to our website, mymcmedia.org, and have a great day. <laughs>